Hello and welcome to episode 23 of Straight from the Hot Tap. After the kind of summer that people are sentenced to in North Korea, here's a feature-length episode bemoaning the lack of fun in our increasingly responsible adult lives. Our special guest interview welcomes Gamal Fambula. Gamal is a household name in the northwest of the UK. As a news anchor for ITV, Gamal gives us a great insight into modern-day journalism and his journey from being one of the precious few black people in the extremely white middle-class Taunton to realising his career ambitions. It's well worth a listen. If you enjoy this podcast, please like, share, subscribe and give us a rating on Good Pods or Apple Podcasts. If not, well then why not build yourself a LinkedIn profile and tell the world about how deeply successful you are. I'm Matt. And I'm Lou. I'm Johnny. I am Josh. And I'm Matt. And this is Straight, Straight from the Hot Setter. Are you called Woman in Bank, Josh? Well, I know we often have our little monikers as sort of names from films and TV shows. So I googled ridiculous film character names. And, I, <laughs> and my favourite was Woman in Bank. Let's say like you've spent your whole life, like you've left your family and you've gone to make it as a big break in Hollywood. And you're telling your folks and friends back home that you've had your big break nothing can conceal the fact that you're bullshitting if your credit is woman in bank (laughs) unless the movie is actually called the woman in a bank which it probably isn't you are a bullshitter you're expressing what keeps me up at night to be fair that could be an interesting story about the place bank not the bank. It's not a bank station. Know. Yeah. Yeah. It could be like, I don't know, a spy that came in from the cold. Woman in bank. The banker who came in from the rain. It's the Jim Jarmusch version of the spy that came in from the cold. Woman in bank. The banker who came back from lunch. It sounds <laughs> gripping. It's great that we're actually all on the podcast, except for Johnny in absentia. He's been to Ninja Warrior UK today. Did Has he been competing? He was, yeah, if he was a participant, or yeah. and, and, if, and if he beat the wall, but I don't know. We'll have to find out in the next podcast. Well, maybe he was the wall. Stay <laughs> well, tuned to hear lot. what happened to Johnny in Ninja Warrior. <laughs> As the wall. I've just had a great appointment with my Chinese doctor. And oh, yeah. so I've been prescribed a brand new tea to drink, which apparently will deal with my unsettled emotions. What, um, what's so in it? This, Ecstasy. It's, probably. <laughs> I don't know, but it, it's a heady combination of Chinese herbs. Yeah. Is it just a pint of bile? It's got Chinese lettering on the, on the packet. And it oh, so you know it's authentic. It. Yeah. So it must be. It's probably just some like jasmine tea or something. So I went to the Chinese doctor two days ago. And they said that... Um, sounds, this sounds like the beginning of a joke, but carry on. I went to the Chinese doctor and I was prescribed with having uh, an excess of anxiety, which I think that a lot of us can relate to. How did he diagnose you? Well, it's really interesting. So Chinese medicine, it's holistic rather than doesn't look at individual parts of the, of the human body. It looks at the whole overall and the blood is key if your blood is is not at the pressure level the consistency that it should be they can see that there's a and so anxiety is very common so the way they deal with it is by dealing with the liver because obviously the liver is how you regulate your blood Mm -hmm. and so calming the liver down overactive liver is a symptom of anxiety right and so that's what i've got so So the tea is to cut the tea is going to cleanse your liver before we carry on can can we just have a disclaimer to our 
to our millions of listeners that this is not a medical advice show. Here's an interesting fact. There are more tigers alive in tiger farms in captivity in China than there are in the wild. If you've seen the show Tiger King, which everybody watched during COVID last year, then <laughs> yeah. you know that there's more tigers in captivity in America. In America than, the than there are in the wild. Yeah, it's, it's terrifying. Wow, that is so, scary. Before we crack on, so I'm actually quite surprised to see... Lou on the call, to be honest. Lou, do you, do you want to just give us a, a little snapshot of your weekend? I need some of that Chinese herbal tea because I think my liver needs detoxing big time. Don't say herbal like Matt does in his American, in his no, Americanized herbal. adopted herbal. <laughs> Here's a reality check. 300 million of us, 56 million of you. <laughs> <laughs> you do the math. Oh my god! It's been a bit of a mental week, really. So obviously, I've worked Monday to Friday. I've also been having a bit of a stint doing some catering at the local sports club. I've done post squash match teas on Thursday night at about ten pm, and then Saturday I did. I'm just doing my invoices now. Actually, I did about forty hockey teas. God damn. That's yeah, I think that was it. But today, oh, oh yeah, I did 40 hockey tees, but I did some catering for a party. And then I attended the party and it totally smashed. And then actually did 140 meals at the rugby club again for rugby minis and juniors. And then um, 45 meals for the, the ladies post-match tees as well. So, yeah, it's been a bit of how a the catering. How did you manage weekends. that? Well done, Lou. Bloody hell. I don't know. <laughs> It just brings me to remember a phrase that uh, a friend of mine named Matt Beatty taught me. What do you want? A medal? Oh, fuck. <laughs> no, actually, <laughs> you idiots. I'm not going to lie. A full day of catering whilst sporting a raging hangover was a really big deal. You're all pricks. This is Straight From The Hot Tap, special guest interviews. Welcome to Straight From The Hot Tap. This is our guest interview section. Today I'm going to be talking with an old school colleague, Gamal Thumbulla. Gamal has risen from Taunton School two years below me, no doubt part of the gang that would annoy us sixth formers when we were trying to be cool to the heady heights of news anchor for national news so welcome to the show Gamal. great to be aboard mate lovely to hear your voice and uh, lovely to be taking part in this great idea Gamal, it must be what 25 years since we spoke to each other a lot has happened in that time hasn't it yeah my word it has i always find it really interesting when i look at LinkedIn and things like that when you sort of see people's journeys and how much of it's similar and how much of it's different in lots of ways but the one thing that I always find interesting is how we all had a similar education in a similar environment in a, in a funny part of the world called Taunton and we forged different paths through life to get where we are today as responsible adults inspiring the next generation and, and also breeding which is a dangerous thing in some people's cases I think. Gamal, tell me a bit about your journey. Obviously, we go back to 97 when I last saw you. Lots happened. I was a class of 2000. So we left in the yeah summer of 2000. And 
I didn't really know what I wanted to do for a career after I, I left school. I knew I wanted to go to university. I knew I wanted to go to Manchester. And the reason I wanted to go to Manchester is like, you know, you, in your last year of school, you go to all these university open days, from the lower sixth, you go to all these university open days, and you're kind of walking around and getting a, a feel of the atmosphere and the feel of the mood. And it went to a couple. And for whatever reason, when I got to Manchester um, on an open day with my mum and dad, I just fell in love with the place. So my mum and dad kind of did the whole academic side. And I remember them coming out of this like big room and saying, oh, yeah, you know, the politics and history course is really good, Gamal. You know, you'll do really well. You'll grow here. You'll develop really well. I'm really glad you guys think that because this place is absolutely wicked. It's just got people from all different walks of life, people from all different races, colours and creeds. And I just I just loved, loved it, fell in love with the place. So luckily... Amazingly, I was able to get um, into Manchester. I did politics and history for three years. And then I didn't really know what I wanted to do afterwards. I had a few options. I ended up staying on for another year to do a master's in international politics. And even during that time, I was sort of ignoring about what I wanted to do uh, in terms of my career. And back then, you kind of think the decisions that you make about your future, you know, that's it. It's science sealed, delivered, and yeah. there's not going to be any kind of movement at any future point. So I kind of like was weighing my strengths and my weaknesses. What was I good at? What was I not so strong at? And one of the things that I really knew about myself is that I loved telling stories. I loved writing, you know, and that was yeah. kind of fitted in with, with the history part of the course that I was doing. I loved communicating, speaking to people, addressing people, all that kind of stuff. So it was actually broadcast journalism that I ended up deciding on. But before that, I'd kind of done some internships at some like political think tanks. So one political think tank called Chatham House, which is like an international institution. And I kind of worked in um, like the Africa development part of Chatham House. And then I worked for another think tank called the Commonwealth Policy Studies Unit, which um, their focus was on looking at the Commonwealth of Nations and how yeah. that evolves when into the 21st century. So it was actually around that kind of time in between like my final year university and working on these think tanks that I actually said something like journalism is something that I think I'd really love doing. So I did a bit of like attachments at various radio stations and what was then called BBC Radio Manchester, um, yeah. for example. I applied to do what was called a postgraduate diploma in broadcast journalism at, at the time as one of those courses that you needed to do in order to get your kind of foot in the doors, like accredited yeah. by um, a journalist body called Broadcast Journalism Training Council at the time. Yeah. And and at the time I applied to the postgrad diploma, I also applied to the ITV trainee scheme or ITV right. bursary scheme. And it is one of those things that there were only, I think at the time, 10 places in the country, there are about 400 applications. And fortunately for me, I was, I was one of those sort of 10 places. So wow. um, off the back of that, part of that, that bursary scheme was to have an attachment to a regional newsroom. And because right. I've been living in Manchester for so many years, I kind of had a, a sense of the Northwest as yeah. a region, basically spend weekends on the lash with your mates in places like Liverpool and Chester and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, you know, I've got a bit of an affinity to the Northwest. And I got to Granada, kind of rose to the ranks from being like a junior researcher, working my way up to becoming a correspondent. I was there for four years. 
I left to go to Sky News, where I was a reporter. I did that for about two and a half years. And what you'll find about this line of work that we're in, you can move quite a lot, quite a short space of time. So I was at Sky as a reporter, like a roving reporter for two and a half years. I left to go to what was then called Daybreak, which turned into, evolved into Good Morning Britain. I was a Northern-based correspondent for a year. And then for various reasons, I decided, actually, I wanted to come back to Sky. I I think I was missing kind of reporting on like big international stories and things like that. So I came back to Sky as a reporter. I was in reporting at Sky for probably about another three to six months when I kind of went into presentation. And then I was a presenter ever since. I was a presenter at Sky or anchor at Sky for seven years. And then life changes, you know, I met a a beautiful woman, settled down, had a little boy, we're based in the Northwest. An opportunity came up at ITV News um, at Granada, and it allowed me to be at home full time because I was splitting my time between London and Manchester. And this allowed me to be at home seven days a week. And that kind of brings me up to where I am today. So I'm the lead main anchor for ITV Granada Reports covers the Northwest news, but it's a huge, busy news patch. Lots goes on. So a lot of the stories that we cover have a, a national dimension or will hit kind of national headlines as well. Manchester, very different place to Taunton. When you first yeah. landed in Manchester as a student all those years ago, where did you feel culturally it was it was alien to you? I think what I would say is that, you know, when I, when I was growing up at Taunton, I had an amazing time. Loved it, loved Taunton, loved the school, I had a great childhood. And my parents, even to the same, would ask me about, was I happy? I think there's often, for people who didn't go to boarding school, there is a stigma associated to people that boarded from time to time. And, you know, I have friends who will ask me about, what was I like being a boarder? You know, what was I like being away from home? But my memories are great. Perhaps not the same for everybody, but my personal experience at Taunton School, uh, my personal experience living in Taunton is all positive. Absolutely loved it. What I would say is that going to Manchester, it was just the different colours of the rainbow, which I don't think I saw in Taunton. I think you could count the number of black kids probably in Taunton on one hand or two hands, maybe, if you look at all the different schools and things. You got to Manchester and there were black kids, white kids, Asian kids, you know, and for me, that is what I wanted. And I think that is, I think I was craving for that for quite a long time, just a real mix, a real diversity. And Manchester was just an explosion. From the minute you got off at Piccadilly Station, you just saw that, you know, and there were gay people, straight people, whatever. It didn't matter who you are, you know, where you're from, your background. It was just a bunch of kids who are 18, 19, 20, 21, all mixing it up in this huge, phenomenal city. And I really think that as much as I had a wonderful time at Taunton, I didn't really experience that as a teenager. No, I absolutely echo that very thing. It was a real shock to the system for me at Warwick when I was on a corridor of 16 people in halls of residence. And that first day getting to know each other around the, the kitchen table, and there were people that I'd never met in real life before. Mm people that were from different backgrounds, different parts of the country, different, yeah, different outlooks on life. And it, it was brilliant. It was energizing, but also took mm. a bit of time to adapt to, didn't it? How did you find you were accepted? One thing that people have touched on through the interviews that we've been doing is how the, the school, whilst we've all got a lot of love for the place, it also tended to try and homogenize us in, time, in terms of how we behaved, how we saw the world. I think that's a fair point. And, and I think there was always not a danger, but I think there was an element of all of us thinking the same. You know, we were all 
you know, we're, we're all cut from the same cloth, essentially. You know, we all spoke the same. The vast majority of people would have probably shared the same political views, or at least their parents would have shared the, the, the same political views. I guess there was an expectation that we were the future leaders of the country and all that, all that kind of stuff. And there's a lot of positives that come out of that. But I think if you're not careful and you move on in life and you fill your world with people who are cut from that same cloth, there's always a danger of you becoming a bit narrow, narrow-minded in your views and finding it difficult to kind of realise that there is a world out there. There are people who are different to you. There are people who will have different ideas from you. And there are people who will have different opinions. And uh, and I think if you can get yourself out of that, and I always say that to kind of youngsters who are looking to you know move on to the next stage of their life, if you can kind of get yourself into a world where there are people who have different opinions, different outlooks, different backgrounds. You're going to be richer for it. You might not agree and take on board everything what other people say to you, but it does broaden horizons and it makes you think. It helps you to be able to challenge opinions and viewpoints. It helps you to be able to evolve and adapt. And I really believe in the whole kind of idea that we should constantly be evolving and looking to better ourselves and we should be striving to being the best versions of ourselves. And I kind of think there is a danger. If you went to school with one type of person, you went to university with the same type of person, you know, you move into a particular area with the same group of people, then there is that danger of forgetting that there is another world out there. It's very challenging in today's society, isn't it? Interesting Mm. as you've followed the journalistic course, because I was very keen on that route myself back in the day. Sadly, I wasn't quite good enough to write professionally. I just you know, good at writing crap on Twitter. But mm-hmm. one thing that people who are into journalism and reporting, they love telling stories of the world around them and they love capturing truth effectively. Do you find that nowadays, because of that mob mentality a little bit with social media and so on, it's harder than ever to tell the actual truth? What's really challenging and no more so than when I was at Sky is that, you know, in this age of social media, you've got this eco chamber whereby people will go to commentators and writers who will reaffirm what they already believe. And and you're seeing a mixing of opinions and a mixing of news. And that's the real challenge that we face right now in the 21st century. If you look at something like Fox News in America, so much of it is based on opinions. But that gets morphed into being news and that gets morphed into being facts. And then people will go to those commentators on their social media platforms for news lines when they're actually more kind of opinions than anything else. For example, when I was doing an interview on a contentious subject like the Brexit debate, for example, I could do one interview with somebody who was a Remainer. Half an hour later, I'd do an interview with somebody who was a Lever. On both sides, you'd be criticised for being either a wokey lefty Remainer or a, a pro-Brexit who isn't aware of the dangers that might bring to our country. And ultimately, as a journalist, as a person, you're just trying to do your job. And there's kind of like an old saying that if you're kind of pissing both sides off, you, you're sort of doing your job right. But what tends to happen on social media is that you do a contentious interview and somebody would clip one particular question that you've done out and then an answer you know, from a commentator. And it would be only like you know, 20, 30 seconds 
that get clips up, that gets put on social media, and all of a sudden there's this huge, huge pylon that you've got these political views and you're imposing them. You're using your platform as a as a news presenter or a journalist to spout out these theories. And it's like, no, you've taken it out of context. You didn't listen to the whole interview. And half an hour later, after this interview, I did another one speaking to somebody on the opposing side and I gave them just as hard a time. But that gets missed. It's really, really challenging. The onus is on us as, as journalists to kind of stick to the facts and try and maintain that credibility. Because if you start veering into opinions, mm. then you muddy the waters and it gets dangerous. Doing local news, y- you get to meet some really colourful characters, don't you? Mm. There must have been times where you're out doing live interviews in the street and so on, and you see and speak to people that never see the light of day on, on the TV, but just blow your mind. I mean, it happens all the time, mate, because we're in this fortunate position whereby I'm on air, you know, Monday to Friday. And the thing with the news that we do, it's all about people. And it's all about getting this balance between having the authority, this is what's going on today, these are the important stories of the day, but also being personable and also being that personality whereby your nan would want to invite you in for a cup of tea and to chew the fat. Is that kind of balance that I'm, tr- I'm constantly trying to achieve day to day sort of doing the job that I do? So often than not, like when you do what are called OBs, uh, outside broadcasts, when you're like basically anchoring on location, you know, you'll be in, say, for example, Liverpool city centre. And you will just get some punter coming up to you and having a chat like they know you because you're you're being invited into their living rooms every single day. They're choosing to watch the program. They didn't have to. So you build up a relationship with them over a period of time. And it's like, hi, Gamal, how are you doing? All that kind of stuff. And I talk about, you know, my son quite a lot when I'm on air and things like that, you know, and you have punters just like asking me about you know, my son. And because I started my career at Granada and then I left and came back, it was quite humbling because people were almost like taking ownership of me and being like, you know, welcome back, Gamal. Great to see you. You know, great to see that you kind of went off and you did your own thing, but we're so happy to have you back in the Northwest and and all that kind of stuff, you know, which I never really experienced before. It feels like a real privilege. But yeah, you do get people like just coming up to you and just, just having a chat. You know, news is news. And, and one of the benefits of what we do is, you know, we have the authority to kind of cover the stories that we want to cover. We don't always have to follow the, the news agenda. So we can kind of sort of do stories that really sort of cut right through to people. I mean, a few weeks ago, I, I did a, a report on on Windrush. And I mean, it's a heartbreaking story um, about a guy who's no longer with us, who was basically told by the Home Office that he, he shouldn't be in the country and he was going to be deported. He'd been in the UK for 60 years, came here when he was 19, built a life, had children, had grandchildren, and he had all the documentation. It wasn't a case of he didn't have a right to stay stamp on his passport. He didn't have this. He didn't have, he had everything. But for whatever reason, the system said no. And he was fighting, his family were campaigning and fighting and fighting for him to have that recognition that he was supposed to be in the UK. He was a British citizen and the Home Office said no. And he died. And, you know, I interviewed his, his daughters a few weeks ago and they were like, the saddest part about all of this is that, yeah, we're vindicated, but he never got to see this day and it completely changed him. His lawyer said to me, you know, one of the things that he found the hardest, the immigration officer who was telling him, don't hide. We know where you live. Don't try and kind of fool us. Also, 
wasn't born in this country and he had been living in the UK longer than this guy. Heartbreaking story. But that's when you kind of speak to people on the yeah. ground. You're just like, wow. Wow. Do you feel a sense of mission and purpose when you come across those, those situations? Yeah, I do. I do. Like, you know, I, I, I try not to be sanctimonious about it, but in so many ways, it's a privilege what we do. You know, we give voice to people who more often than not don't have a voice. And we give them the opportunity to, 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 to say what they want to say. You know, sometimes people are up for it. Sometimes they're not up for it, but we're giving them that opportunity. Um, and it's all about people, this business that we're in. Yeah, you know, you have politicians and your, your role is to hold institutions and, and public bodies to account. But it's also getting to the heart of the story, which is more often than not people, you know, which could be your neighbor, your best friend, your mum, your dad, you know, your 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 granddad, your grandmum, you know, your your child, you know, who has been failed by the system, you know. So it it it, it is, you know, it's a responsibility and we take it seriously. We have a lot of fun doing it because, you know, we have it's a magazine solid program, so we have both light and shade. But when you do the serious stuff, it's really important that we get it absolutely right and we do right by the families and the people that we speak to. Does it upset you when you see so much nonsense about mainstream media being in the pocket of Murdoch or corrupt or fake? Yeah, yeah, it's really frustrating. But, you know, you can get bogged down by it and you can get, you know, wound up by it. And for me, you just got to stay focused. You've got to keep on doing your job being balanced, being partial, people kind of mix us up with the newspapers and stuff like that. And what most people don't realise is that we are governed by completely different regulators. We're governed by Ofcom. And if we fall foul of Ofcom, there are sanctions. Another thing I used to find frustrating was that people are always like, you know, you've got an an agenda, as you were saying, you know, when Murdoch had a stake in Sky, which he doesn't now, but so many people still think he does. You know, people are like, oh, you know, there's an agenda, being told what to ask and all that kind of stuff. And I always try and labor the point. I've never gone into an interview with somebody telling me, this is what you have to ask. This is what you have to say. We will have meetings and we'll be like, okay, what lines do we want to draw out? What areas do we want to go at? But there's no kind of big figure from Mount Olympus <laughs> coming down and saying, you know, Gamal Fambula, when you're doing this interview, this is what I want you to say. This is what I want you to ask. It just doesn't happen. No, it doesn't exist. No. Well, that's you know? definitely been my experience as well. And the, the few times I've been involved in it. Absolutely. Looking back at the various things you've been involved in, what's the story that you feel most proud of being involved in the telling of? So, I mean, I've been in this business for, I mean, 15, 20 odd years now. And for all the stuff that I've done, and you do big interviews, you speak to big politicians, you hold people to account, you speak to the person on the street. But for me, it's got to be my time in Afghanistan. So I was embedded with the Northwest Regiment. They were the first battalion of the Duke of Lancaster's regiment, and it was during their time in Helmand Province. So for the best part of a year, maybe just slightly over a year, I had followed this group of men as they were training for this Sigma tour of Afghanistan. So I flew out to Kenya with them. And when they were on training exercises, I went to sort of planes uh, with them. I did various bits and bobs. I obviously went to, went to their barracks and you kind of spend time with these guys and you build up a rapport, build up a relationship with them. And that culminated in their tour of Afghanistan. And that culminated in me joining them for a period. And I think for me, why it always sticks with me is that there are so many arguments 
about Afghanistan and whether our troops should have been there or our troops shouldn't have been there, whether it's right or wrong, all that kind of stuff. But fundamentally, and because it's a business all about people, the truth is, is that these guys who were younger than me at the time, most of them, you know, like 18, 19, 21 years old, were out there thousands of miles away from home, their families in a bloody extreme environment, doing their job, serving their country and constantly in fear of their life. And it's kind of like telling their story and being able to kind of sort of paint a picture for them of what the situation is like for them. And it was tough. Yeah. How did you win their trust? Uh, because these guys are trained killers. Let's not, let's not put too fine a point on it. They're, they're there to, to do a job and be in harm's way and retaliate with, with force if needs be. They'll probably naturally be suspicious of somebody who's not not from their own. They're also, from my experience anyway, very loyal to the, to the regiment they're in. So insiders might be challenging. And I guess the, the second part of that question for me is, what did that experience teach you? I think what I would say is that often these kind of stories that we cover, you can't just rock up with a camera because then they're like, well, who the hell is this bloke? What is your agenda? Why are you here? So the, the key to these types of stories is that you touch base, as I did, well before they go out on exercise. So you give them time, you, um, you give them space and oxygen to kind of get comfortable with you. And you don't just start filming. You're just there in their environment, hearing their story, talking about their their girlfriend back home, who they're hoping to marry when they get back, talking about their mum, who is, you know, constantly worried about them and, you know, sending them parcels and things like that. And you're kind of sort of cultivating and nurturing this relationship with these guys. And then you start introducing the camera in so that's kind of you know part of the reason why you know i went out to kenya with them i went on these different exercises i spent time at their barracks because by the time you get to afghanistan they're like oh yeah you're right Kamal, how's it going great to see you again you know can and then it's like oh can we do a follow-up interview can we do a chat and then they're kind of comfortable with the camera so the key is you know to make sure that you're not just thinking let's go and get a story let's go and get a story it's finding out about these guys finding out their stories or chatting to them and then slowly introducing the camera so they they have that familiarity with you because more often than not what tends to happen you know when you when a camera's off people are very chatty like how we're chatting now and it's all very conversational the minute the camera starts rolling they become a different person and a classic example is if you're talking to if you're interviewing a police officer off camera they're like yeah this 21 year old white guy basically knocked over his dog terrible story you know, awful, you know, we just really want the public to help us. The minute the camera open, it's like, you know, a white Caucasian male who is, you know, roughly the ages of 23, 24 years old, not this canine on the And you're like, what the hell is that, mate? Just talk, yeah. just chat. So, so that's what I mean, you know, it's a long process. If you take your time and you're careful with it, it does pay off. What did you learn from the experience? It was really humbling. You know, like I said, these are young guys who are younger than me. You know, when I was their age, I was getting lashed in Manchester, in our halls of residence and causing havoc with my, with my chums, you know, and for these guys, they were literally, they're putting their bodies on the line for the guys who are around them. It kind of just made you quite thankful about how lucky us at home have got it. And, you know, yeah, this was their choice. You know, they chose to join an infantry regiment, but at the same time, it's bloody hard work what they're doing and they might not live to see the next day. So really, it was really humbling. And also what really surprised me was that the amount of guys who were like, thanks for coming over and thanks for telling our story. You speak to MOD officials and all of that, and you speak to sort of government representatives and they will tell you, you know, give you a line. But actually when you talk to guys on the ground, the story is actually very different. And when I was there, things all would always get bad over the summer months. By the time I was arriving, 
British troops at the time had lost quite a lot of people in Afghan. My lasting memory is just how, how humbled I was. What about your appreciation of warfare? You're a historian by education, aren't you? You know, you, you've read about all these things. You've heard Mr. Chatterton tell colourful stories, no doubt, about these various conflicts over the years. But actually being in one, what did it do for your appreciation of international conflict? That it's awful. I think people can be quite gung-ho about it all. I'm from a, a generation where, you know, I kind of grew up on things like, I know, Platoon or Born on the Fourth of July war movies and Saving Private Ryan and all that kind of chat and you go to the cinema and you kind of enjoy the movie and stuff like that and you know kind of just gave me a bit of a a real deep appreciation of the fact that it's actually really grim and it's really violent sometimes losing your life is one thing but coming back maimed is something completely different and again in in the work that we do we often report on people having life-changing injuries and when you interview somebody who has had a life-changing injury, and you kind of see it with your own eyes. It's really quite harrowing. It kind of just reaffirms just a a view that I had that it should always be the very, very last case. You know, like all options should be on the table and all options should be exhausted before you start committing our young men and women onto a battleground where they may never see their loved ones again. Well, it's real, isn't it? I think is the the word, isn't it? It's take away all the cinema from it. life and death isn't it what do you think you've taken from taunton then through your life to where you are today i mean there's so many things i think what i will say is that there are two guys in particular from taunton who i consider to be like more than mates they're like my brothers sam lupson and peter dunn and you know we're still kind of regularly in touch it's one of the things that we may not talk for weeks or even months but there's that connection the minute we do talk where we just pick up where we left it and I think that's kind of one of those things that, you know, I'll always appreciate from Taunton. It's kind of given me the relationship that I have with those two guys in particular. Things like teamwork, you know, and, and I think that, you know, we were really lucky where we were open to a lot of sport. And it wasn't just kind of rugby. There was hockey, cricket, athletics, whatever. But it gave me that fundamental grounding in life whereby yeah, there's the individual, there's a person. You probably do a lot better if you work as a team and you work collectively. I think to my times where bloody hell, everybody that knows me knows that I was probably the most unfit person on any team that I played, <laughs> you know? Um, I think that's where you and I have something in common there. I was, yeah, in, what, exactly. what, I was in what was called the Corner Cutters Club. Well, After a fitness beasting, uh, Mr. Rogers and Mr. Abel used to pull myself, Graham Wicks, Dara Umana and okay, who was the other one? There was somebody else as well. It might have been Alex Becky or someone. And we had to do extra fitness because we, A, weren't fit and B, were cheating <laughs> when doing fitness. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Didn't work. Yeah. Well, well, <laughs> I don't know if you've got the same memory, but a Monday morning at around 11 o'clock around break time and there'd be the rugby notice board. You'd see those words like in like bright red, trainers only. And I swear to God, your stomach <laughs> would just, I knew that I was just going to be in pain, in all types of pain. And trainers only meant, more often than not, it meant Rag Hill. And it's just like, please God, no. I managed to avoid Rag Hill. I don't know how I got away with it because I'd, I'd have been first on the list probably back then. But I had a recurring, well, I wouldn't say it as a nightmare. I think it's probably that's a bit strong. But I've always had a recurring dream about the notice board where they used to post the team and yeah this recurring nightmare where i'm walking from 
the main school building across the parade grounds and the notice board's getting further and further away. I eventually get there and my name's not on it. It's really funny. I had such anxiety about getting picked for the teams. It got in my head and it's lived with me ever since. I found it so traumatic at the time that I actually quit playing rugby at uni. I stopped. I went into Warwick and just couldn't even begin to get any enthusiasm for picking the ball up again. So I did four, you know, four years without playing. I played loads of cricket, but no, no rugby. And then, when I, yeah, when I left uni, I started playing again and, and played till I was in my early 30s before I started coaching. It's fascinating that you say that. I think this kind of, I'm just like a, a full circle to what we're talking about, about people being cut from the same cloth. And there's almost this, you know, expectation that you had to get in the team and you had to be the best and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, there's there's definitely a place for that. But sport in pro-west wasn't for everybody. And I kind of feel that, you know, if I look at some of my friends who perhaps weren't interested in sport at all, there's an element in pharmacy kind of feeling a bit left out and feeling a bit out of place. Oh, completely. You know, completely. Um, it is a shame. And some people will say, well, no, there were other opportunities, like whether it's debating or whatever. But, there, you know, there are some people who just didn't really excel in anything no. you know and they just kind of just wanted to get by and, and just get on with it and i think if there's all that pressure on achieving then yeah. you will get people who achieve and you'll get people who will sail but then there'll also be the people who fall by the wayside a bit you were lucky because you played cricket and you excelled in mm. cricket but there'll be those people who perhaps didn't excel in cricket or rugby or athletics mm. or whatever and that anxiety you can imagine kind of sticking with them like right into their, their adult years. Yeah. I think what I found really difficult as well, well, I, I say difficult, it's more, more interesting, was when I started playing cricket at Warwick. So I was first in cricket. I was by no means one of the best players. I, I was, I held my own, you know, I was, I was all right. Back of my mind, I always had this slight inferiority complex, I suppose. When I went to Warwick, I was one of the very first freshers ever to play first in cricket in their first year. And I remember just this feeling of being good, being able to stand up and have the confidence to say, I'm actually pretty good at this. And it completely yeah. changed the way I saw the game. And yeah. I went from feeling anxious about my personal performance and worried about whether I was good enough to be in the team to just loving, loving playing, loving playing for the sake of playing. And yeah. I had a, an amazing four years playing cricket. And I'm not saying I didn't enjoy it at school, I did. But I felt a lot of pressure to perform and I felt a certain amount of anxiety about not being good enough to be in a team that had every mm. right to be in. You know, it's funny. Mm. Anyway, yeah. last question for me, Kamal. What's your biggest inspiration in life as you as you look through all the things you've done? What's been that person or, or you know, or that thing that's, that's driven you forward? It's got to be my brother. You know, I'm sure many of the people that will listen to this would have known my brother. His very last words on earth to my mum was that, he just wants me and my sisters to do well in life. That is like stuck to me. That's like a tattoo. And that is constantly my driver in life. I always go back to those words and I always go back to him. You know, he's a real character full of life and paint a picture for the type of guy that he was. I mean, when, you know, he was in hospital and he'd come home for, for a little bit and one of his mates came to see him and Bummy said to him, because I was at, right at the time I was playing a lot of rugby and hockey and I think I was, you know, county or whatever. He said to my brothers, you know, Fitz, you, you worried that your brother's going to be a better sportsman than you were. And I, I remember like it was yesterday and Fidel, like straight off the bat, didn't even think about it. He was, I want him to be better. He is just my constant. All these years later, not a day goes by where I don't think about him and, you know, what he would say. When I'm in a bind, 
uh, right, feel like I'm in a corner and I'm like, bloody hell, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this one? You know, I'm like, what would Fitz do? What my, what would my brother say? He's my inspiration. And everything that I achieve in life, all the goals and, and all of that, it's about making my mum and dad proud and making my brother proud and kind of realising that ambition that he had for myself and my sister. I think Fidel's death had a big impact on everybody at that time. I knew Fids a little bit. Again, he was just a huge personality, wasn't he? Physically yeah. huge as well. I remember everyone had huge love and respect for him and something changed in everybody when that happened because at that stage of our lives, we were completely cocooned from real yeah. real life, weren't we? I mean, obviously people individually had, had tragedies and things happen in their lives, but to come back to school and they're not to be somebody who was such a, a feature of, of our environment was, was really difficult to get our heads around at that time. I yeah. remember really well hearing my dad talking to Mr. Todd about it and how Mr. Todd was just in pieces about it. And it was tragic, you know, but I can absolutely see why it's driven you forward. And there's no doubt in my mind that if Fidel, from what little I knew of him, could see you now and what you've achieved, he would be unbelievably proud and would probably take the piss as well. Massively. <laughs> massively. He took the piss right to the end. He protected me like constantly right to the end. And because so I didn't know how bad it got up until I knew how bad it was. And there's this one occasion where I was talking to him on the phone and I look back now and, you know, obviously he was on his way out. But, you know, I told him that I'd, I'd snogged my girlfriend and he's just like, oh, you cheeky little devil kind of thing, you know, and that just summed him up. Like he was going through all of this in so much pain. He was dying, but he wanted to protect me and he wanted to have a laugh by the fact that I had plucked up the courage to, to, to snog my girlfriend um, at the time. I hope that wasn't my sister. <laughs> I don't know. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. It wasn't. It might be. I don't know. <laughs> um, but, Is that many you can't even remember, Gamal? Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> you meant to go on. But, but what's lovely is that all these years, 20 plus years later, every single year, his best friends have a reunion, you know, and they all get together. And even in COVID, they had Zoom calls around the 12th of May when, when he died. So, you know, he's left his mark on his friends and he's been able to keep, you know, start 20, 30 of them who get together at one of their houses and they just have a, have a good catch up. My mum brings loads of like West African food and there's like loads of food on the table and drinks and all that, you know, and they just chew the fat on the last year. And, and it's been great seeing how all their kids who are no longer kids, you know, teenagers now, what they're doing with their lives and all of that, you know, so he's left his mark and, you know, his legacy is there to see. Traffic Island Discs. Music captures people's feelings, people's ears, people's personalities a little bit, doesn't it? The mission was three songs. One, that reminds you of growing up, that period of transitioning from adolescence to adulthood. Song two is one that reminds you of a place, a physical place. Third thing is one that makes you happy. And then that last question is, to wrap up, is if you go back in time and relive one day, what would it be? So a song that reminds you of growing up, it's probably um, The Crossroads by Bone Thugs and Harmony. So I think it's around the time when I was in the fourth or fifth year of school and I just played that on repeat constantly. Partly because I was trying to be cool, 
could be one of the few black kids in school. And partly because it's just a, just a, a great, great tune. And I'd spent a long time sort of trying to rap. So that definitely reminds me of growing up. Whenever it comes on, I kind of remember the guys that I was in a dorm with at Taunton. I think a song that reminds me of a place is, you know, Jerusalem. That definitely reminds me of Taunton. Like, whenever you hear kind of the rugby and stuff like that, what a lot of people, like a lot of most of my friends, my university and friends, don't understand and they don't know but it was how chapel was so fundamental to our school life we did it mondays wednesdays fridays i think and then every sunday without fail and you'd be in that particular hymn as well you would bellow it out as loud as you could because there we were teenage boys refusing to sing um for the most part or dicking around and the very rare occasion where they put on a, a hymn that we all loved, it changed, didn't it? And there, there was another yeah. one as well. I can't remember what it was now, Bread of Heaven or something like that, that everyone used to yeah. just stand a little taller and, and sing a little louder, definitely. And, and you're right, every time yeah. I hear it at the rugby, it reminds me of, of Chapel. Funny, isn't it? It was so kind of regimented and all that kind of stuff. So you, you think about it now and you're like, that is just so far removed from what my life is like now. But at the time, you, you took it so seriously and like the whole school would kind of sit down and then the members of staff, or the prefects and then the members of staff would walk in with their gowns and everybody would stand up. And so like, what the hell? Do you know what I mean? It's like, what? At the time, that's what our life was like. And, you know, some people had the full colours, blazers and all that kind of chat, you know. Um, very funny when you look back at it now. But, yeah, that, so that, that definitely reminds me of, of a place. I think the song that was it was a song that makes me happy. I'm actually quite into my musicals, believe it or not. And I'm really, really into Hamilton. Love it. Anybody that hasn't seen it, I highly recommend. If you get the opportunity, you've got to go and, and watch it. At the very least, get the soundtrack on Spotify because it's just superb. And it's definitely, you know, the first song. Like it, I kind of really got into Hamilton at a time when my wife and I were trying for, for The Little Man and it was taking a bit of time and it was a bit of a glum period. Part of the reason I was away half the week and all, all, all that kind of stuff. But Hamilton was, you know, we just constantly listened to the album. Like my wife and I, we both loved it. So like the first song, and it's also kind of like a rags to riches kind of song, how a guy, he came from absolutely nothing, essentially came from the gutter, basically rose to the ranks, became one of the founding fathers. It's a, it, you know, that first tune as well. But a great beat, it's a great tune, so like really cool lyrics as well. So that definitely makes me happy. And that one day, if you could relive, you'd love to go and do it all over again. Oh, wow. I mean, that is a question. Um, I would say, if we're talking about sort of taunting in the school, I would say it was in the senior Colts rugby playing away at Bryanston and we won. The only team in the school that won and, you know, I'm sure a lot of the guys that you've spoken to have just got great memories of that senior course here, the SC team, you know, when we're about 16 years old, 15, 16 years old. And people used to say to us, like, when we're in, like, the, the junior Colts and the Foles and all that, you'll be the fittest you'll ever be when you're in the SCs. And it is absolutely true. And, yeah, I remember being on the coach, you know, we're at the back and as stupid boys do, everybody's on the coach and, you know, there are these pretty girls who were, you know, from the school kind of like walking around and all the guys are like, oh, look at, you know, look at that. all that kind of chat. And everybody, you know, all the sort of boys are being stupid boys and kind of standing up and all that kind of stuff. And Mr. Mason getting on the coach and saying to the rest of the team, 
you sit down, they can stand up, they won their match. <laughs> you know, our chest just like inflated. It was just the fact that we were the only team that beat Bryanston on that day. And it was just, and we just played so well. On paper, they should have beaten us. They were stronger than us, faster than us, but we just played collectively as a team. We were super fit and we just took them on. And then we went back and basically went to town and got lashed afterwards. If I could relive that day again, uh, I absolutely yeah. would Okay, goosebumps thinking about it. Because uh, yeah, we, we were the only, the first senior Colts team to go unbeaten in, well, I think ever actually. Uh, it hadn't happened. And we went unbeaten. And, and I've got a photo, but my mum took it after the game. And, we, and we're, we're all there in our, in our you know, hoop tops. And we just look elated and I'll never ever forget that moment where that final whistle went. I mean, we were in tears. I've never felt emotion like it. I remember the night before just not sleeping at all and feeling really anxious about the game. Um, and I never used to get nervous playing rugby. Like, I just used to just turn up and, and do my thing. You know, I never really, I got worried about getting picked, but not actually playing. Before the kickoff, everyone was pretty focused and, and pretty it wasn't much chat, pretty head down. And Mason called us in for the team talks and he used to properly get us riled sometimes, I'm sure he did with you guys. But that day he didn't. He didn't. He just very quietly went around each of us and said how proud of us he was to get to that point and how we just had to go out there and believe that we're the best team and do the things we've been trained and we'd win. And we did. And the sense of relief at the final whistle was enormous but then when it dawned on us what we'd achieved the way it meant so much to people but in really different ways it was something else you know really i'll never forget that moment is that lesson that hard work pays off if you put the time in if you put the hours in if you commit yourself if you work together if you're a unit then it will pay off in your favor and that's kind of one of the legacies of being in taunton definitely yeah 100 percent It was interesting to chat to Matt the other day because uh, that's a very good second leeway into what we were thinking about talking about today, which was how everyone feels under immense pressure every day in the lives that we live to do all this work and achieve and stuff. We were having a discussion about like what our lives are like and about all this pressure that you feel under all the time. And actually, it's just really important to learn to relax properly. We called it the importance of dicking around. Where this came from, right? I started paddleboarding about, I don't know, six months ago or something. The way I taught myself to paddleboard was by going to a lake with a paddleboard and repeatedly falling off it in front of quite often subsizable crowds taking photos until I learned how to do it, right? Now, my weekends when the sun's out comprise pleasant paddleboarding trips down rivers, lakes, seas, and so on. So I was thinking, you know, that was fun. So part of the experience of learning was essentially dicking around, right? No, just getting on it, having fun, falling off lots, and gradually I picked it up. Fast forward a few months, I was at the same lake a couple of weeks ago, and I was watching some paddleboarders having lessons. So their lesson, which I'm assuming was about an hour long, comprised at least half an hour of a safety briefing, theory of cold water shock conditioning. And the actual experience of being on a paddleboard lasted at best 20 minutes. And I thought, what's happened to just dicking around? You know, what's happened to this, the joy of just doing something for the sheer fun of it? Why is there now 
a perfect way of doing something that everyone has to follow. And I thought about this, and you extend it to pretty much anything, right? So watching my daughter play hockey today, first thing I was told off for them not having the right kit. Secondly, there was some sort of team huddle and some sort of positional chat. I was thinking, right, Josh, how many hours did you and I spend dicking around with a hockey stick and a ball? And how much did that joy teach us how to play hockey? Yeah, and everything else, a rugby ball, cricket ball, tennis ball, golf balls. We've dicked around with a lot of balls is what we're trying to say here. But, <laughs> but um, all shapes and sizes. You're completely right. Yeah, I mean, that's where you, uh, you get the confidence, you know, by doing, isn't it? With anything, I think. It's not just Matt Graham. Maybe you can relate in your recent exploits uh, starting to drive. I mean, I, yeah. surely you become a better driver by driving. I actually am a very good driver as a result of actually being able to do it. Although I, there were a couple of scary moments on my recent road trip last week. I drove through a red light and nearly rear-ended someone. I sort of feel like a lot of it, I just remember at school doing that kind of thing a lot. There's a similarity today. We're all under all this pressure all the time. And it's actually one of the most healthy things to do is actually just to learn how to do things like paddleboarding and to just have that space to to get good at it by just messing around and so, or driving. For me, having the space to to just get used to like being behind the wheel of a, of a I've not driven a, a what you would call a regular car yet, but it, it's like being able to drive has been just like that space of being able to experiment has been great. So what you're saying, Missy Matt, it's a way to teach people to drive. It's just to give them a car and a motorway just and just say, go, fill your boots. Yeah. No rules. The thing is, I've generally been learning on roads that don't have any other drivers on them. Yeah, it's the doing of it. Okay, obviously, with stuff like driving and things, you have to, obviously, you have to be safe and you have to do it the right way. You have to do the theory and and be qualified. But that said, I mean, I I remember one of the benefits of, I guess, growing up in Somerset was I, I learned to drive in a field and there was obviously no risk to anyone apart from myself. But I was very confident just with all the gears and, you know, steering and stuff. So by the time I did actually start my lessons, I knew how to drive in terms of just the practical element of getting in gear and moving. But did you get into the field, Josh, by taking a corner too fast and rolling your car into it? (laughs) Well, I mean, as you know, I I almost did that a couple of times. That was after I had my license. So, you know, go figure. I don't know. But isn't Um, it kind of like what you were saying, though, is that there's an importance to just have that emotional space to do that in an un... Not an unsupervised, but just like a way that is not tightly controlled and observed. We had to create this space for ourselves emotionally where we were free of that pressure. And it was in that space that we used to do, like you guys used to mess around with hockey sticks. Um, Yeah, we gambled and we we made strange videos. We listened to a lot of music. In Evans, we came up with all kinds of extremely creative ways to... Assault each other. I mean, where do I begin? I mean, is it not a kind of byproduct of... I mean, I hate to say this because obviously it's a bit depressing, but kind of like getting older, you seem to play less the older you get. I guess it's the fault of, well, the the responsibility of growing up, of bloody jobs and society and all that kind of thing. So by the time you've done 10 years in a career, the time to play around and mess around stuff, yeah, you have to maybe pick a hobby like, yeah, like paddleboarding or I don't know, whatever it might be or driving or that's why everyone loves to have a holiday, right? I think you're absolutely right. The kind of the corollary, in fact, to what you were saying is that it becomes even more vital than it ever was to learn to be able to have downtime. Once you've spent 10 or 20 years now in a career, 
people often approach that phase where you feel burned out, right? There's this time from your mid-30s onwards where people, even earlier in some careers, where people report feeling burned out. Like this Chinese doctor was saying, the most common thing people deal with is anxiety. And it happens for all kinds of reasons, usually money. If you're taking anxiety out of your life by learning to relax, is something that becomes a necessary skill that because of the society that we live in is frequently frowned upon and looked, and looked at as wasting time. But actually, I would argue that it's actually become more vital than ever before. For example, I did this week-long road trip last week. When I left, I was feeling totally stressed out about work, feeling useless, worthless. I couldn't figure out this new script. But then when I get back, I'm feeling, having done nothing all week, I'm feeling just really reinvigorated and, and good. I'm reading this really interesting book at the moment that was written by someone that I met once called How to Do Nothing. It just tells you how healthy it is for the human condition to actually learn to do nothing, to, to mess around, as we call it, to dick around, to do paddleboarding without super specific. Do you know what I mean? I see you're right, Matt. Actually, Lou, we were talking about this the other day, weren't we, about the cold water swimming thing. For listeners, this time last year, we started doing open water swimming, which has a bit become quite fashionable, I suppose, uh, during the lockdown months. But we found by accident, really, that it had ridiculous amounts of benefit to our mental health, to our enjoyment of our lives and so on. And a big part of that for me has been the way that it strips away your inhibitions and your, your layers a little bit because it is so extreme. And a lot of it is, frankly, dicking about, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, honestly, we can been driving to the lake where we usually swim and we've had a hell of a day or a hell of a week or some crap has happened or something or I'm, you know, not in a great place mentally or emotionally. And then after swimming, I just feel, do you know what? Everything's okay. And life has been reset a little bit. But there's also an element of dicking around, but which is fun. But it's more about actually just forgetting everything that's just happened over the last 24 hours, week, 24 days, whatever, you know. Yeah, just actually switching off from all the day-to-day pressures, worries, money, kids, work, lists of jobs and all that sort of stuff. So... I think there's something really pure about swimming though, especially outdoor swimming. There's something incredibly pure about it in the sense of it's like such a sort of natural thing to do that it's like all the best things about sort of reconnecting thing. It's very, you know, you're just using your body in an element and it's great. I did this hike last week and I went swimming in the mountain stream. Frigging amazing. It was pretty cold. Did you feel euphoric afterwards? Oh, yeah, totally. No, I felt amazing. I just felt, I love cold water. It's just incredible. I think it's, it's like one of those things that I discovered in later life that makes me feel so alive. Here's a thought though, right? Do you think that to snap yourself out of it and to truly forget about stuff, do you feel you have to do something extreme? Like that, do you feel that's a factor? Doing something so cold, you can't get that dicking around or just playfulness or just freedom from, I don't know, doing something like a walk. Do you have to do something a bit more serious? I actually had a really amazing personal discovery this year when I was up back in March and I was under just incredible anxiety about work. I stopped trying to work one weekend and I just basically watched Netflix all day. I felt I, I was physically ill because I was so anxious with what was going on. 
I just felt this unbelievable calm come over me. I remember I watched the movie Hot Fuzz, you know, the Simon Pegg film, which I love. And I remember thinking, like, why didn't I know how to do this before? Why is it that every weekend I sit down at the computer and try and write? Every single weekend, and it's a nightmare. The weekend is the most depressing time to try and write because you don't get anything done and you know that everyone else is enjoying themselves. And I just sat there watching Netflix and just thinking, like, why didn't I do this every weekend? You've got to give yourself permission sometimes to do nothing and to, and, to, and to not regard it as nothing, regard it as something that's important to your week, to your health, to your psyche a little bit. I'm really, really bad for this, actually, because I've always got a mental list of things I need to be doing, things I should be doing, things I could do, things I haven't done yet. But I put a lot of pressure on myself to make my house perfect, to do all the things my kids need me to do to excel in my job, to further my career in ways I want it to go in. And sometimes I just have to actually say, do you know what? If I don't actually just sit down all afternoon and watch some crap on TV or do nothing, drink wine, eat some crap food, something, then I'm just actually going to explode. (laughs) But it takes a lot for me to actually get to that point to say, do you know what? I'm just going to shut the door, turn my phone off, and do nothing and actually let myself and say this is okay to do this that's the key is is giving yourself permission to do it because yeah for years i just thought to myself if you're not doing anything it's because you're failing to achieve i've had a different thing because my upbringing was we've just been all of my family of extreme hard workers coming from a farming family if you're not working 14 hours a day then you know you're bloody lazy and this has been ingrained in me (laughs) and uh, my entire upbringing to just keep on going for me to like have a holiday or chill out for the afternoon the opposite of how I've been brought up this is one of these sort of things where it's sort of this human thing for a lot of people I mean I think it's it's not just societal but it's kind of like instinctive right it's one of those things which places us in conflict within ourselves but it's also this constant basically competition against ourselves against other people either consciously or unconsciously right I mean if the cavemen just sat around going hey this is cool this is enough for me then we wouldn't be where we are today for better or worse do you know what I mean the human desire to create more have more be more productive obviously that just has perpetuated through the centuries you know but it's part of our makeup right but it also puts us in a position where we're in conflict with ourselves and especially now with so much going on like there is no such thing as downtime there's no off time because of our phones and work being able to contact you at any time of day or any day of the week all that bullshit means that there is no enforced downtime like there could have been in the past this human condition thing is must do better must get more must keep up drives you a bit crazy especially i think maybe our generation and this kind of era is suffering from it more than before coming to taunton sea an incredible rooftop rock and roll extravaganza to rival some of the biggest concerts in the UK. See the very finest imitations of your favourite bands from the roof of Debenhams with unprecedented views over the River Tone. 
Watch Blobby Williams smash through some plus-size hits, drink local cider and get your groove on to local band The Rolling Tones. This concert will be an event to remember, like Glastonbury, but without having to sleep in an ocean of piss. November the 15th, 7pm. Tickets cost £25. None of the proceeds go to charity. I often associate downtime with being able to think creatively. It's weird. There's a direct correlation. Being able to think creative is something that everyone, you don't have to be in a creative career, but it's usually when your mind's in the best space. There was a great lecture by John Cleese from Monty Python, where he talks about what he says are the five elements that you need to be able to think creatively. He goes, one, space, two, time. Three, time, four, <laughs> confidence, and five, humor. It's just like that ability to just relax your mind is how you come up with your solutions to life's problems. With myself, it's my own anxiety that causes almost all of the problems that I deal with. I completely agree with the whole downtime thing. I'm probably more in the camp of like an active downtime whereby, yeah, you're doing something like paddleboarding or swimming or sometimes it is worse having quiet time. It depends where, you, where your yeah. anxieties are and where your mind is at. Here's a good example. Mm. Like I don't sleep very well. This morning, I was up at four o'clock in the morning. Up, I was awake at four o'clock in the morning. And then I guess I had some enforced quiet time where I wasn't doing other, anything else. I had no distractions. But it has to be a sort of productive or useful downtime. If you have a completely quiet time and you're not in some sort of meditative state, your thoughts and anxieties can actually increase. If you can use that downtime to do something that will be healthy for your mind and healthy for your body, whatever. Because it's totally quiet that you actually start overthinking situations and things that have happened and should I, woulda, coulda type thing, you know, yeah. Oh yeah, that's a common thing for me. That's what the doctor told me, right? It's that overthinking that causes you to, one, ruin any ability to have any creative thought at all and two it's self-perpetuating it becomes almost habitual right it becomes habitual and then you end up not being able to create anything not being able to think clearly about anything you know it's a really good reason why sometimes i love being on my own but being alone too much is a really bad thing really it makes nice. me think on this phone call like two of you guys have got like families you know that's actually really important because it takes you away automatically from this endless alone time. Josh and I are both in relationships, but it's a bit different because we're in relationships with people who are also have their own careers going on and blah, 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 blah. It's a bit different. It's funny you say that, Matt, actually, because I divorced my husband, but we have three children together. We actually have them a week on and a week off. So he has them one week, I have them the next. So we actually have a full week of no kids, empty house, Loads of quiet. I've never realised how much I've needed some quiet <laughs> sort of no time. But when I'm over that euphoric of like, and relax and peace. But after about two, three, four days, I'm like, hmm, it's really quiet around here and I'm not sure I really like this. You need a balance. That's the perfect word, yeah. If you're just alone all the time, 
then you end up living with your own paranoia. You, it just exacerbates all of your personal problems. Like I've seen it happen personally, right? You know, your social life is absolutely vital, no matter what that looks like. I know it's well documented, the benefit of laughing a lot. It can't be overlooked, actually. It's an right? endorphin. Of, if you think about the times where collectively, individually or whatever, we've started off a conversation as you do normally, and then by the end of it, you're crying with laughter and the, the, the absolute hit that gives you. But, but also the way it, it can spark creative thoughts. So just had one just today, in fact. You know, had I not entered into that conversation and gone through the boring part of the conversation, which is how are you, how's your week been, how was the game, all this sort of stuff, we wouldn't have got to the point where we were sort of relaxed with each other on the same wavelength to get to things that then suddenly start to be creative. I think one of the reasons that I emerged from like school okay is because we had such a great social life together. I simplify it even further though, Matt. I think one of the things that it took me a long time to rediscover after leaving school was the ability to sit and talk and not just talk, but talk shit and discover things and debate and disagree with each other and argue and make each other laugh and tease each other do you know what I mean because of the, the amount of downtime we had together in the same room with, with not a fat lot else to do no phones for distraction yeah, there was no phone no remember. TikTok to spend hours flicking through videos on and those times really helped us not just build relationships but also form our worldview form our personalities in lots of ways you know Lou you know some of the evenings we, we've had out with our friends around here you start off, don't you? You know, you start off, you haven't seen each other for a couple of weeks. You have a couple of drinks. It's like, how's your week been? All the rest of it. And it's yeah, like, oh, you know, the how, how the first, kids, yeah. how, you know, how, yeah. how's work? Three hours later, you're talking about where the best place to put a lead on a giraffe is, at the top of the neck <laughs> or the bottom of the neck. You're wondering, you know, if you were to keep a primate as a pet, which would be the best one? <laughs> <laughs> we have had some ridiculous nights like that, yeah. I really envy you guys. One thing that's really difficult these days is to get beyond the superficial, isn't it? And one thing that we have in spades, and Josh and Johnny and I are, are meeting up for a, a couple of baby shams and a round of golf at, at the weekend. And Matt, you're going to die. You guys better not be thrown out of the golf club. Incredibly, well, yeah. that hasn't happened you yet. Man- yeah, you managed to rein it in whilst you're at the golf club, don't you? It's just <laughs> after that. I don't know, there's been a few incidents at some point, yeah. Like, how quickly do you have a blackout? Is it 45 minutes? <laughs> a competition. I feel like we had very, very different school lives. Going back to Matt's earlier point, that's how you get beyond the superficial. I may have said this on the podcast before, but I'm 42 and I still <laughs> cannot sit in a restaurant with my back to the room. I can't do yeah, it. Yeah, you're really weird feeling, about that. I feel really, really uncomfortable and it's all Josh's fault. <laughs> really? What did Josh do? Well, Josh and I spent what? I'm guessing at least two years, possibly three. Yeah. With this long-standing game where we would sneak up on each other, <laughs> punch each other as hard as we could, and then and then melt away into the background. So you could be doing something completely innocuous. Like I remember sitting in the library once, you know, reading a book, and then out of nowhere, this is blinding pain. Yeah, Josh had snuck <laughs> up on me. I, I remember hiding in a bush once, seeing Josh walking past and sort of leaping out, punching and running off. <laughs> I remember a time in the library as well when we were sitting next to each other working and just like being normal. And then suddenly out of nowhere, you just decided to give me a massive dead leg. <laughs> oh. What a common character. Two years of punching the hell out of each other. 
Matt, do you remember that time where we managed to, I, I don't know where we got these from, but we managed to acquire a pair of handcuffs from somewhere. Yeah, where did we get and, them? And that became, I have no idea where we got them from. Did you get them from your dad, Matt? When I say that, I mean, lot confiscated property. That's probably right. And yeah, it was just like a long-standing joke to handcuff things to things. And I remember just handcuffing you to a chair and just running off. <laughs> I remember looking out of the window and seeing, seeing Matt walking <laughs> down the main school drive on his way to the science labs. <laughs> this chair, these hands. I can't remember that at all. <laughs> Do you remember that? I oh that so my god, that's absolutely. I, re- I do remember stuffing your pencil case with bread once and it exploding in English class. God, yeah. I remember that. Yeah, I remember that. We invented this like serial killer in Evans who was called the Baker, and the Baker used to stuff your pencil case with bread. Wasn't just your pencil case, Matt. It was pretty much everything you had with bread. everything you had got stuffed with yeah. bread. And we used to leave, leave, leave so notes from the baker. You remember, Mister Abel then withdrew our privilege to have bread. Well, part of the problem was that we had to you had to go and get the bread from the kitchens, didn't we? And you had to say which house you were in. And we worked out that if we went and said we were Evans, we got one loaf of bread. But if we went and said we were Will's West or something, we'd get like five loaves of bread. So we started <laughs> nicking all the other houses' bread, but then quickly realised there's only so much bread you can eat. Then there's so we had this, this ex- excess of bread. So we started to find more and more creative ways of disposing of the bread. So but can you imagine yeah. if you did that at your work now? People take themselves way too seriously. Here's an interesting thing, right? So going back to the conversation we had earlier about dicking around, right? So I did a contract for a council. So I worked for Essex County Council for a couple of years. And no exaggeration to say that it was the most sterile, depressing, grey place I've ever worked. It was almost like everybody there had just had the life beaten out of them. Brutally. Yeah, there was no, yeah, there was no joy in their lives. Everyone even looked a little bit grey. Anyway, some team had some sort of secret Santa thing. And one of the, the presents was this little teddy bear, which was like a, it was a lamb. The lady that, that had the teddy bear was really pleased with this. And like, it was like, oh yeah, you know, she used to have all these little teddy bears on her computer hard drive thing. She just used to go about the teddy bear the whole time. So just for a laugh one day, I stole the teddy bear. I wrapped it in a couple of USB cables that were lying around. And I took a photo of it printed it off and said but if five pounds is not received by a certain time you know your lamb is going to be turned into a curry or something like this i just left the picture on her desk i just put the lamb like in my top drawer or something went off for the weekend and i came back in on monday and it was as if somebody had just suddenly turned the lights on in this place and the intrigue and the amusement of something slightly crazy happening was just overwhelming for these people. It was like the best week of their life. What happened to the lamb? You know? Really? No joke, right? And then I kept on escalating it by putting the lamb in, in more and more ridiculous situations, like strapped to a chair and all this. Just little things just to keep saying that I haven't received my money. You know, the next thing that's going to happen is I'm going to cut its leg off or something. And it just brought so much joy to the department until somebody took it too far. It wasn't me for once, actually, and put some lamb chops on this lady's desk. Actual lamb chops. Of course, she was vegetarian, and it wasn't as funny as perhaps could have been. Actually, I find that quite funny. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I, I, thought was, I thought it was quite funny. It was a bit extreme. The joke at that point was quite silly, and then it just suddenly got a bit macabre. But after that, everything got a bit weird, and all of a sudden, senior management got involved, and there was a little bit of a sort of thing about not picking on each other, and we're here to work. Stop, and we're Stop sort of dicking stuff. around at work. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think that anybody did any less work that week. But everybody went to work and enjoyed their experience more. 
You know? Yeah, that is a perfect example of just mixing a bit of work with pleasure, a bit of fun. We live in a society that separates the idea of enjoyment from the idea of your work. But actually, you know, work is it's supposed to be enjoyed. You're supposed to do something that gives you fulfillment that you enjoy doing. The only thing that's worse than a sort of bland, mirthless work environment is a work that does organized fun. Oh my God. Oh no. In a desperate attempt to prove morale or it's literally just to tick a box. And as a result, it's like literally the most joyless experience for everyone there. Yeah, guys, we've got a great day planned. We're going to do team building exercises or some shit like yeah. that. Yeah, we're going to do some breakout sessions. We're going to do yeah. some improvisation. I'm like, really? But can I just not have half a day off? Yeah, yeah that, that would boost my morale. Well, this, that's a great example. Is like, what's better for morale? Like, <laughs> right, guys, go home at lunchtime. Let's wait yeah. till after work, and then we're going to make bridges out of paper straws. And then we're going to do a workshop about company values, uh. and which is essentially brainwashing. I've never had to work in the corporate world ever, right? Sometimes I actually regret that. Probably best you haven't. I can just observe how it gives people stability that I just don't have. I just don't know how I could cope with that. Like, I've never had anyone telling me what to do. I've always been a self-starter. Everything I've done this. Correct me if I'm wrong. Obviously, in in the movie-making, TV-making world... There's a massive corporate side. But as a creative, it's great working with other people. That is an element of imagination and fun, like we were kind of going back to as early as when we were kids. I mean, yeah, obviously you're there to do a serious job and there's a pretty serious environment when you're doing that. But there is a this kind of creative fun element which has to be there. Otherwise, the process cannot work. So that's kind of cool. There's nothing more serious than being in the writing room of a TV show, right? But at the same time, Everyone there understands the value of downtime and being able to allow themselves to think creatively. But I don't think it's so different. Obviously, it's the same for you, Josh, because you 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 have to find the emotional range when you're acting. But I just feel like it's actually the same for those of us who don't work in that, who don't use our emotions as the basis of our living. Yeah, it should be maybe given a lot more focus. I mean, to go back to the suffocation of fun and freedoms and stuff in terms of just expression and all that in the workplace i feel like a lot of it is this kind of corporate environment where it's almost like a badge of honor to work your ass off and be available and that is super unhealthy I, i sense that that is actually starting to be exposed and changing perhaps in some environments it's a big thing with the banks and in law and everything you're enslaved by the corporate environment and you have to just buy into it 100 percent. but i think that's really unhealthy just to say a footnote to that I think it's just as intense in the creative environment because if you're preparing for a role, Josh, you're doing it all the time. You're doing it 24-7. I never, ever get to stop thinking about what I'm doing work-wise, even late at night. And I wake up at four in the morning thinking about, oh, this script's not very good, you know? So it's like, ironically, that corporate culture has become the same as how the creative culture is in that respect, you know? It's like you don't switch off in your creative environment. You live that job, so to speak. But it's just exactly the same in corporate. You know, when I've been asleep, I've sent probably 50 contracts out <laughs> in my dreams, which is really bad time. So it's so fucking boring. Yeah. You know, but we're in an environment where overtime's expected, going the extra mile is just expected. It's not okay, really. What I find most difficult is to focus on homogenization. It's like, this is the ideal. This is what the model employee looks like. And now 
everybody has to homogenize against that ideal. And if you don't toe the line or you find that ideal unattainable for whatever reason, your career is as good as finished in that organization. You know, yeah, and if you either, don't exceed that level, yeah, then you're never going to progress in that never corporate progress, environment. Never. never. And you'll either just be sidelined and pushed in, into a cupboard and, and left there to rot for all eternity. Or you'll just never ever get a pay rise and you'll be shunned. So you're effectively managed out. What I found really interesting about the pandemic is, which kind of ties in with the, the shit that's happening at work for me at the minute. One thing has been absolutely refreshing and really interesting is when everything's being done remotely and people are at home and all the rest of it, all of this corporate veneer has been stripped back so i've interviewed senior people who are sat in their front room and then the cat walks across <laughs> the laptop mid-interview or the, the, the amazon guy arrives at the door or the internet fails the kids walk in asking for a cup of tea all of that sort of bullshit that's just nothing more than stage management has gone and what you're left with is authenticity like grace walked behind me whilst i was on video on a team's meeting and she was actually naked at the time. So that's, <laughs> <laughs> that, that's the shit we're talking about. <laughs> yeah. Real it's life. almost like people have realised that that idea of being available long into the night, sending emails when you're having dinner, answering the phone before you go to bed, all of that stuff has been exposed for being ha- as damaging as it actually is. To, I mean, it's, it's, to live Completely. in that way is incredibly damaging psychologically. Those systems are still in place. I mean, it, there's an awareness of them, but I think they're still very much in place. I mean, I'm thinking of my summer with the you know yacht charter stuff. I mean, it's just been completely mental and you're just literally available all the time. And it's just this expectation by, by both client and company. Yeah, it's not healthy. It's not healthy at all, no. A hundred years ago, when the labor movements were getting going, especially in the US, obviously in Europe, they were already well established. One of the things they were all fighting for was the ability to, if they had an eight-hour workday, to have eight hours equivalent where they had no obligations upon them and where they could do whatever they wanted at the time. It is so unhealthy. That was the cliched workaholic character in the 1980s who didn't come home from work until 11 o'clock at night and ruin their family life. That's actually yeah, what we've yeah. all become. It's very difficult to not wake up in the morning and go on your phone, check your emails straight away. Yeah. Right? Because <laughs> we've kind of got into this habit of doing I certainly have. I have to actually check myself and go, hold on a minute, no. That's not what I need to be doing right now. Yeah, good I on you. I need to be yeah. thinking yeah. about how many times I'm hitting my snooze button and what is the latest possible minute I can get up. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about you, but I have to be thinking, how can I possibly craft my new Instagram photo to show what a successful life I'm living? <laughs> <laughs> that's a full-time job. Yeah, that, that's a job in itself. Well, that takes us to the end of a long, rambling, but hopefully interesting episode 23. Thanks so much for listening. This episode is brought to you by Moran's Restaurants in Westwood Hope in North Devon. Moran's is a true gem of a family-run restaurant serving authentic Thai food and one of the best espresso martinis south of Manhattan give Frankie and her crew a call. Congratulations also goes to Frankie and Tony. They welcomed their son into the world recently and he's just perfect. This was straight from the hot tower.